Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right, everybody. Hello. How you doing? I'm Brad Listy, and this is the Other People Show. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I have on the program today Matthew Spector. He is back for a second time. It's been a number of years since I talked with him, and I'm pleased to have him back as a guest as he celebrates the publication of a new book called Always Crashing in the Same Car on Art, Crisis, and Los Angeles, California. It is available from Tin House, and it is superb. It's a book that defies easy categorization. It's an essay collection. It's a memoir. It's a work of cultural history. There might even be a little bit of cultural criticism sprinkled in there. And it's greater, you know, it's greater than the sum of its parts. I loved this book. I looked forward to it every day. I didn't want it to end. I got sad when it ended. And I'm pleased to share the news of it with you and to have the chance to share this conversation with Matthew Spector. That is coming up momentarily. Today's episode is made possible by Custom House Books, publisher of the new novel Appleseed by Matt Bell. Kelly Link calls Appleseed, quote, as urgent as it is audacious. And Karen Russell calls it, quote, a work of incandescent imagination. Matt Bell is a Young Lions Fiction Award finalist. This is his breakout book. It explores climate change, manifest destiny, humanity's unchecked exploitation of natural resources, and the small but powerful magic contained within every single apple. The novel is set in 18th century Ohio, in 2020's United States, and a thousand years into the future. It's got a lot going on, and Matt Bell seamlessly weaves these three narratives together using mythology, folklore, and science fiction, he has written an unforgettable speculative epic novel, Appleseed, by Matt Bell, available now from Custom House Books. So, my guest once again is Matthew Spector. His new book, available now from Tin House, is called Always Crashing in the Same Car, on Art, Crisis, and Los Angeles, California. Matthew Spector is a founding editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books. He is also the author of several other books, including the novels American Dream Machine and That Summertime Sound, a nonfiction book called The Sting. And he's at work on another nonfiction book. You're going to hear us talk about that 
in the conversation. Again, the latest is called Always Crashing in the Same Car, available now from Tin House. Very pleased to have the opportunity to share this conversation with you now. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Matthew Spector. You know, when I was a teenager in LA in the 70s and 80s especially, there was so much feedback, you know, so much of the kind of image of Los Angeles was still being drawn by East Coast perceptions of Los Angeles, you know, and whether it was like Woody Allen films or, or, you know, publishing or, you know, you, you would get this kind of sense of like, oh, L.A., it's that it's that cultural desert, you know, uh, nobody reads in Los Angeles, um, you know, so it, it felt particularly hostile to me. Like, I, I really did kind of believe like, oh, I have to go elsewhere. And there, there was a kind of comical um, interlude that's not mentioned in the book, which is when I, when I first went away to college, my, my roommate and then several of my friends were all from Columbus, Ohio. And I got, I got very wrapped up with this group of people that were all from, all from Columbus. And I, and I sort of fell in love with, with, um, with, with Columbus and kind of by extension with the Midwest. Um, you know, I was sort of like, Oh wow. You know, I was, I found myself in Columbus, Ohio. And I was like, this is the coolest place I've ever been. Um, (laughs) Uh, it, which I think was quite wonderful too, because it it kind of shattered my my sense of of America as a sort of place that exists as you know a pair of coasts and then something nebulous in between. You know, I, I went to Chicago, I went to Detroit, I went to you know I went to a lot of places where I kind of discovered other aspects of 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 experience that aren't just the ones from the coasts. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I moved to to New York and then I moved to, to or rather I moved to Massachusetts for school and then to San Francisco and then to New York and then to London for a little bit and then back to New York. And I came back to LA when I was, um, when my daughter had just been born. So I was 35, you know, I had gone from being a a teenager to being a, a, you know, an actual adult. And, um, you know, and not only had my sense of LA softened and my sense of attachment to it kind of altered because you, you know, by that, by the time you're that age, you kind of realize that you are only ever from one place that your kind of your history and your kind of nascent experience. I mean, if you, if you grew up in one place, you were from one place. Um, and you know, and, and, you know, there was sort of forgiveness of my parents involved and, and all kinds of things, but also LA had changed, you know, I think LA in, you know, in, in the year, you know, 2000 was a completely different place than LA in 1982. Um, I think that it had, it had developed, a lot more of its kind of cultural vernacular. And obviously there, there's always been, you know, besides the movies, there's been visual art. There is a kind of deep and rather profound literary history to Los Angeles that, that stretches beyond Nathaniel West and John Didion, um, uh, obviously. And, um, you know, so, so it, it was a sort of a matter of, of both, you know, coming back as an actual adult without a kind of teenagers, spiky, judgy, um, self-protective armor and, um, you know, and, and finding that, that Los Angeles had changed quite a bit for the better. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. For the better. Um, um, although I'm not convinced that it hasn't changed for the worse again, since. <laughs> but yes, for the better. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I guess, first of all, why, why for the better from between like, you know, the 1982 version when you're a teenager and you're in your kind of like your judgiest mode of, of life or whatever. And then coming back as a 35 year old, what had changed that made it feel better to you? I think some of it's, some of it's 
hegemonies had could crumbled. I'm I'm thinking about basically the the sort of you know the 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 inherited view of 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 Los Angeles as as a as a sort of cradle of spiritual emptiness had sort of been challenged by more people who'd come here, more artists, more writers, more more people who had who had arrived and 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 probably a, a sort of widening lens of what the city's history really consisted of, um, you know, so that I could, you know, in other words, not just a sort of changing of the guard and, and a sort of, I mean, again, I think the, you know, the kind of boomers who had defined LA in the, in the eighties were still very much in, you know, ascendant when I returned, but, um, but not, not alone. And and I think some of our understandings too of LA's cultural history that had always been here were beginning to widen, um, you know. And by which I mean stuff that isn't just about Hollywood or the movies, but I mean you know understanding about about I don't know the the Watts poets and you know and 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 a lot of the other cultural histories that had been that had been you know written to written off to the margins was beginning to you know to expand itself somehow. I, I find I find myself having a very complicated relationship with this city. I never fully feel like I belong here. I've said this many times. Uh, it's like a recurring theme in my life. I I don't know if I fit. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if the city wants me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had that. I guess you kind of have had that feeling. You write pretty well sure, about it. You know sure. this. I, I, Absolutely. And I think, you know, look, um, you know, I, I think there's there's no I mean, just because I, I love it doesn't mean that I'm free of ambivalence about it or doesn't mean that I don't, you know, look at aspects of it with horror or, you know, open my eyes somehow and look sometimes and look around and just think like, oh, my God, like these people are assholes and I live smack dab in the middle of them. Um, but I think one can have that experience in any city. <laughs> and and you know, the kind of, um, you know, I mean, I don't know how much I fit in with the city's dominant culture. You know, I was, I was sitting, um, idling in my car the other day and this, this blue Lamborghini with, you kind of came roaring by me and the, and the kid behind the wheel, I mean, it looked like a, someone who was about 12. Um, and the license plate was Bay, B-A-E. Um, I did a little Googling and I have a weird suspicion that it was actually Logan Paul. Um, who, and, and I, I'm not sure about that, but you know, I, I just, you know, there's that element of the, of the city that the sort of hype house element that, 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 you know, the, the, the influencer element, you know, all of that stuff that's, that's very prominent. And, um, I certainly don't feel like I belong to that entirely. <laughs> No, you know, no, no offense. That's that that that's just a, a kind of co-function of aging, probably. But it's also, you know, it's it's a reminder that you know, LA is really vast. There are there are many, many, many parts of it to which I don't belong, and and that's true for any city, right? So I, even though I know LA has such a weird, it's like the the kind of myth, the vibe of LA is meant to be so so inviting and at the same time so exclusive that. I just think those feelings, that ambivalent, that that sense of like, do I belong here is, you know, would have to be somewhat universal for for most of us kind of making our way through it with any degree of sentience at all. Yeah, I sometimes find myself you talk about modern influencer culture, um, talk about aging, which, you know, everyone's doing, but you and I are relatively close in age. Like 
I find myself feeling like, especially over the past 10 to 15 years, like so much of the shine has come off the diamond when it comes to the entertainment business. Uh, yes. And the reason I say that, I think, is because, well, a lot of the a lot of the gates uh, have come down in terms of you know, who wants to make a movie. Uh, you can make a movie with your phone now and distribute it yourself. And if it's good enough, it'll find a big audience on the Internet. It seems like uh, you can become a billionaire, you know, by filming your kid opening presents on YouTube. <laughs> Uh, I think the point that I'm driving at is that it, like kind of everybody, especially if you're on social media, is famous to some degree. Yes, yes, 100%. Yes, yes, it, I think about this a lot. Yeah, and yeah. so the mystique is gone. And I feel like, too, like, I don't know, I, I, I sometimes contradict myself. Like, I'll sit around bitching about how the only thing that ever gets made and hyped in our film culture these days is, uh, you know, comic book movies. This is so untrue, and it's such an inaccurate thing to say. I don't know why I keep saying it. It can, well, it can feel that way, but the truth is that I think the, 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 the more accurate truth is that there's so much content being made that I feel like the exclusivity is gone. It's too much to keep track of. It just feels like this giant tidal wave that just keeps rolling in of stuff that, that I'm never going right. to be able to watch. I don't even know what I'm missing half the time. And I, I think the question I would pose to you, because I think what I'm stating is relatively easy to agree, to agree upon, just the basic yes. uh, like rough yes. outline. But the question is, am I just a middle-aged guy who is getting cranky right on time <laughs> and yeah. feeling like he's lost touch with the changing culture? Or... Are these things, are, are these developments um, really kind of to be mourned, you know, for people who have a love of film culture and cinema? Yes. I mean, I, I think that, I think the answer to that has to be both. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm certainly cognizant of the fact that, you know, this is what, this is what cultures do, all cultures, right? Literary culture, book culture, film culture, music culture, right? It's like cultures cultures age and they sort of take their place in history and and you know one never wants to be the sort of um old guy who's like oh you know it was things were better in my day um you know even if they they were or they were at least for you and that still counts right i don't mean for you brad i mean i mean you know for for all of us who experience that and i'm pretty sure that we all do or we all will um at some point or another you know but i also think you know that that question of sort of um saturation market saturation you know there's only so much we can pay attention to um you know i mean i think about that a lot because you know this book is another piece of cultural <laughs> uh, uh arcana entering the, the the sphere and and how you know um how important it is that that people continue to make these things you know i don't mean how important my own book is but how important it is that that we continue to make art and how important it is that that we that we recognize the kind of the specificity of it i think in a way it's like um you know there's 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 so much material out there so many movies so many tv shows so many books so many novels so many memoirs and um and the and the kind of countervailing force in the culture that, that is constantly trying to get us, you know, that is constantly trying to convince us that like, these are the important ones, right? Um, 
in a certain, you know, in other words, like these are the movies you need to see. These are the shows you need to watch. This is the thing that's, that's mandatory. That's relevant. Um, you know, or, or, you know, as you just mentioned, Marvel movies, you know, these are, these are the, the kind of things that are going to, that are supposed to dominate the landscape that are the thing, you know, these are the things that people are discussing. Um, and I reject that. <laughs> I reject the kind of, um, hegemonic model. I, I reject the notion of, 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 you know, well, this, this is the, this is the thing that's urgent and relevant because of course the question is always to whom. Um, and you know, and also the fact that I think that, that works of art are, are, you know, they're like, they're like messages in a bottle, you know, <laughs> on some, on some kind of root level. Um, you write a book, you are, you are casting it out or you make a movie or you make a record or, you know, whatever piece of art that you, you make a painting and you're kind of casting it out into the world. And, you know, there's the kind of commercial imperative and commercial fate of it. But there's also the, the fate of it, you know, the, the encounter between, you know, um, individual person between individual writer or viewer or reader or rather individual reader or listener or viewer and individual artist. And I think that contact, that one-to-one -one contact is what matters. It might be all that matters in this way. Yeah. And I think it can be easy in a place like Los Angeles that is so steeped in um, like mystical, <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for with regard to fame culture? You know, there's, yes. this, there's this mythic, you know, this mythic quality to Los Angeles and what it means to succeed here. And yes. I feel like, like, you know, to speak more about the, the current cultural moment that we're in where everybody's sort of famous. Yeah. Like some of that, some of that has been diminished. And I think even like true, true celebrities are feeling it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how they couldn't, you know, just this feeling of like, Oh, I'm doing a zoom interview on Conan or, you know, yeah. like, yeah, it's it's yeah. just gotten it's gotten cheaper or something, and yes, maybe but, not in an entirely bad way because the you know some of the veil has been pulled away, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. But you know, I guess the I, I don't think it's a bad thing at all, really, not really. I mean, you know, it's like again the and this is you know this is really in large part what the book is about, or at least in part, you know the 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 whole concept of of celebrity <laughs> or of you know, becoming big of, 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 you know, a blowing up, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, feels incredibly naff as my English friends say, uh, to me these days, it, it just seems kind of lame. Um, and, and like maybe the, the kind of, you know, the, like, it'll, and, and by the same token, and I think this is also kind of literally true, there's a way in which privacy is, a, is, a, is now a kind of luxury good, it's like, you know, I almost sometimes feel like privacy or a certain a certain level of obscurity is what is what an artist should almost strive for. <laughs> that's I mean, that's the ideal, isn't yeah. it? Especially for a writer yeah. is that your book goes out, it gets reviewed really well. A lot of people buy it and read it. And yet you go completely unrecognized in your day to day life and nobody knows who you are except for your friends and family. I mean, that's kind of yes. how you want it, right? That's, that's kind of, that's kind of the ideal. I mean, I, I think the idea, and you know, I, I don't even know what would constitute a being a kind of quote, famous writer unquote anymore. I mean, I guess, you know, I mean, famous in a kind of wider sense, you know, maybe Colson Whitehead or something, Colson Whitehead for sure, you know, or somebody like that. But 
even that seems like, um, you know, like, I don't know if that's an enviable position, particularly, um, someone, someone in publishing described that position to me recently as something, they said something like, you know, Hollywood, Hollywood problems, but not Hollywood money or something like that. And I thought, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's, what's the point? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so you uh, write really beautifully about Los Angeles in this book in a way that satisfied something in me. I've been like wanting to write. I think living here, you naturally find yourself thinking about writing about the place. Um, but as a reader, too, you know, in a, especially in a contemporary context, I haven't read a book that gets this place this well. Uh, and I think, you know, to be fair, it's a you know, it's, it's your experience. You have a particular background in this city and in your work life that meshes at least to some degree with, um, the core cultural concerns of the place. Not only are you a writer and a screenwriter and a creative person, but you come from a family background where your father, Fred is one of the founders of CAA. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, not, not quite one of the founders The the five founders when it formed it in, in, 75 or 76 um and um and he he came over he was sort of one of the one of the handful of people that came over to join them a year you know a year or two later so you know um he wasn't like a founding founder but he was like a like a kind of er, very early architect i mean i think he was there when there were fewer than fewer than 14 people working at the company so it was it was still very small so one of the, yeah one of the earliest hires and kind yeah. of a legendary talent agent in this town yeah i, I mean I, I think at this point kind of the the last man standing of that generation it's kind of insane that he's still active um and um and you know i, I i've seen i've seen him referred to in in various print places as legendary so i guess that i guess that's i guess that's the word yeah well i mean he's look he's represented a lot of uh great actors like he represents what de niro morgan freeman like you you would know it better than i but certainly sure. some heavyweights gene, gene hackman duval i mean it's over the years he has represented uh you know a lot of a lot of heavy heavy people barbara streisand uh, you know you go back, you know, even in the early begin, very beginning of his career, he represented, I mean, this was before he, before he could even get him a job, but you know, Jack Nicholson, like a lot of people, a lot of people. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think like the point that I'm driving at is that you have that part of your family experience. You also have, um, a troubled relationship with your late mother, which you go into uh, detail in or detail about in the book. And which I think is really the heart of the book is the relationship with your with your mom, who yeah. herself was a screenwriter, who yeah. I think was disappointed creatively would be a way to put it. Like and, most screenwriters. Yeah. But he, maybe even more, maybe even maybe even more than most. Yeah. And so I, I guess when I talk about like the like, I think you're particularly well suited to write about this place uh, because you you sort of have seen the gamut, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, firsthand what it's like to, you know, to be a disappointed, uh, screenwriter or to have borne witness to a parent who was struggling creatively. But you also have a parent who by, I think Hollywood standards succeeded wildly and yes. yeah. was, was sort of, uh, at the cool table, I guess is the way that I would put it, you know, like, uh, had access to all the things that I think people imagine having access to when they imagine Los Angeles and 
you were kind of caught in the middle of it. You didn't ask to be born into, no one's asked to be born into the circumstances that they're born into, but you grew up amid all of this and then, you know, have had to try to forge your way as a writer, which really didn't materialize for you until later in your life. You know, you're not yeah. like F. Scott Fitzgerald I, publishing I, at 22. I was doing it early. I mean, I was doing it when I was a teenager and, and onward, but I didn't, but I didn't succeed at it for a long time. And, and I think for, for, you know, weird, slightly flukish, um, array of reasons, slightly flukish. And some of it just had to do with the kind of slow, slower development <laughs> of, of, of the ability and slow education and kind of, you know, rendering that into, into forms that might've been publishable. But, you know, I think that's the, the strangest thing about all of it is that, you know, I, I've never, um, identified as anything other than a writer. I think like a lot of writers, it was like the, the, in, the, the impulse and the, and the education. It's like everything aimed itself that way for me from a, from a very young age. And, and, you know, for the longest time I thought I'm never going to write about Hollywood. Like that's the most, you know, that's the, that's the, that's the most anti-literary place in the world. Um, and, you know, eventually it became clear to me that, you know, that, that when you are a writer, you are dealt one hand, <laughs> the hand of your own experience. And, um, it's a strange and, you know, frankly, quite fertile experience that I've been dealt, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, if, if, if I were, uh, I'm not comparing myself to these people, but it's like, you know, Faulkner, you know, was given Mississippi <laughs> to write about, you know, Toni Morrison had Ohio, Philip Roth had Newark, Saul Bellow had Chicago, um, you know, so, so LA and, and this particular strand of LA, which is certainly, you know, only a strand of it just happens to be the one that, 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 you know, that, that was given to me to, to, to work out. Yeah. Well, and kudos yeah. to you. You did a great job. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And I, uh, I want to talk to you about success and failure because <laughs> these, these, uh, these things too are at the heart of the book and they really speak to me as somebody who is middle-aged, not like a roaring success. I, I don't know how many, I don't even know that many people who are maybe, I, you know, on one hand, I can count the people I know who would actually qualify for that title in the uh, in the, uh, traditional sense, but I do. And you've, you've had some of them on your show too. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, yes, there are, there are, there are never that many of those people. Um, but, 
but yeah, go, go, go on with the question because I like I like this. Yeah, well, I think you know, I, I don't know. I I think a lot about whether or not I even want success if it requires what it seems to, <laughs> you know, like I have a complicated relationship with Los Angeles. I have a complicated relationship with the notion of success and with ambition. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure if I trust this idea that like, you know, it's good to be hyper ambitious and hyper competitive and to want to win. And I'm like, well, a, what does that mean? What do you got to do to win? B, what are you winning? <laughs> uh, yes. Like what yes. are the costs that, involved? Great. That is a, that is a, that is an excellent that is exactly the question <laughs> that we should all ask. I mean, look, I think everybody who who writes or probably everybody who does anything, you know, certainly anybody who's listening to this particular conversation, you know, has some endeavor in their life where you feel like, you know, I, I, I you know, you have at least some at least some reptilian part of your mind is like, ah, oh, I really want to blow up. I, you know, I want this to be huge. I want my novel to sell, you know, 500,000 copies in <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's like you want something, right? I mean, there's a certain kind of ambition that's kind of wired into all human, all human nature and all human endeavors. And, um, and yet, (laughs) and yet the kind of the, the wages of, of success of certain kinds of success of, of sort of loud public facing success are brutal. And, um, I don't, I, I've never really seen them help anybody. I've never seen them help anybody creatively. I've never seen them help anybody personally. And 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 I've seen and known a lot of people who have met that fate. Um, you know, I've I've known obviously people in in the movie business who've had that experience. I've known musicians, and I've known I've known writers. You know, and I've, I've, whether it's you know writers who have had that expe- that experience quite young, like like Brett Ellis. Um, or, you know, I mean, we all, we all, you know, know the sort of more contemporary analogs of, you know, people who win MacArthur genius grants, people who, um, you know, who win big literary prizes, people who, you know, whatever, whatever the people whose, you know, whose writings are turned into, you know, very successful films or television shows. It's like those people (laughs) are, are all out there. And, and, and I suspect that, that almost all of them speaking honestly, would tell you that that is an experience they have had to survive. Um, not that it was a great or easy boon <laughs> to their lives, although surely in many respects it was, but that it was also um, something that had to be navigated, something that had to be negotiated, something that kicked up complicated interior feelings. Um, you know, I can't say what those feelings are because it hasn't happened to me, but uh, but I can guess. <laughs> And, uh, and, uh, and a little more than guess, I can, I can kind of feel them on the, on the, you know, kind of inherent in even the kind of moderate success that I've experienced myself and, and, uh, and they're double edged. Um, in fact, there are more than two edges. They are, they are like, you know, holding, uh, cubist razor blades <laughs> in their in their in their serrations and in their in their problems. So there's a great quote from uh, Tuesday Weld in the Tuesday <laughs> Weld essay in the book, and yeah. she's talking about uh, actors that she's known, particularly the particularly those who are on the back half of their career, uh, you know, who have had a lot of success but who are up in age. I think that's who she's referring to. And she said something that really struck me. Uh, 
And essentially it, it is that she's never met a single one of them who is happy. Basically. She's talking, she's talking about Orson Welles, um, I think, or, or she's, she's extrapolating from her experience with making a movie with Orson Welles in 1971 um, called the safe place. And, and, Orson Welles is kind of a perfect example of someone who, you know, it's it's easy to forget that 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 when he came here to make Citizen Kane, he was the he was the toast of the world, you know, um, and um, and I think his passage from there over the latter decades of his life was very 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 complicated, um, and I think Tuesday Weld, who um, I just love and who's who's really you know a, a, along with Renata Adler the one person I wrote about in the book who's oh well and Tom McGuane who's who's alive um, I guess I would say the one person in the book who's alive who who felt so mythic to me I didn't I didn't reach out to her or want to kind of disturb her privacy like I think she's the one person in the book who's alive who doesn't know the book exists and and you know and and may never um, which you know kind of just gives me a kind of strange frisson in in talking about her or or thinking about her role in the book um you know i feel in a lot of ways like as someone who who was famous and you know and always also considered maybe a little bit of a you know famous but never quite living up to whatever her promise was you know she was supposed to have had um never mind that she didn't appear to have any interest in whatever that promise was that it didn't seem to have anything to do with who she was or is um, you know, and now I don't think she's worked in, I don't think she's acted in anything in at least 15 years, um, which is a really fascinating place. It's like, you know, an, an artist who kind of had this long career and who, who still has a, an ordinary life that I don't know anything about. Right. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a theme running from, uh, essay to essay or section to section that this book is a, a hybrid in the truest sense. I mean, I didn't even know what to call it. It's an essay collection. It's a memoir. It's a collection of cultural criticism. And I think it's interesting and true to life, especially for creative people, how, as you're writing about, uh, kind of midlife crisis stuff, you know, you had gone through a divorce, you were living alone, um, helping to raise your daughter, but, you know, struggling to find your way um, at this stage of life and thinking a lot about the things that we've been talking about, you write about in the book, and I think we're doing this in your real life uh, as well, uh, you know, turning to creative figures of interest and inspiration who became a kind of mirror for you and helped you to understand yourself better. And I think that's often how human beings do it, especially creative human beings. Like, yes, you can go to therapy. Yes, you can write in your journal. Yes, you can g go for long walks in the forest or whatever. But uh, more often than not, you know, I reach for a book, uh, I think is, the, is my go-to, or I'll watch a movie. We look to art to try to find a map or to find some reflection of ourselves that can help us piece the puzzle together and make sense of things. All, all the time and you know and, and rarely rarely directly right it's like you know I, I i think it's fairly seldom do i pick up a book and think this I, I want this book to show me my way out um or my way through or my way you know or or or, or to show me me at all but 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 you know the constant feeding of oneself with art which i do and which i think all of us who again all of us who are listening to this certainly do um is uh 
you know, is, is essential in that way. It's like, you know, it's, it's not just showing us, you know, who we are, who we wish we were or how to be, but, but some kind of weird combination of those things. It's showing us a spectrum of, of human possibility. And, you know, this book, which, you know, you mentioned the, the kind of some of the experiences of the personal experiences that lay behind it, a divorce, a dying parent, all that stuff. You know, I wanted to find a way to write about those things without, without writing about them, without, you know, God, I mean, you know, it's <laughs> one thing I did not want this book to do. And I, I, I don't think it does. Hopefully it does not is, is whine about or, or, or even just describe, you know, my, my own, suffering or my own problems, which, which struck me even as I was in the thick of them as being incredibly ordinary. Um, but to kind of use them as a, as a kind of way of entering these, these wider worlds and wider questions posed by the the people that the book looks at and thinks about. Well, I think, I think also, or I would have to imagine that by focusing on people like F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, I'll list some of the people that you're writing about, some of the artists, but F. Scott Fitzgerald, Carol Eastman, uh, Tom McGuane, Hal Ashby, Michael Cimino. Um, is that Cimino? It's my pronouncing Cimino. That? Yeah. Yeah. Cimino. Uh, Warren Zevon. Um, you know, the, by looking to these people and by f- using them as a, a kind of way in, I can, I can imagine as a writer, how that's a lot more appealing than simply dealing with what's going on in your head or in your heart. <laughs> um, I mean, it's like, I don't know. I've tried to write a book of a similar nature and it's excruciating and it's really hard to make it palatable for a reader. Like you realize like a, how ordinary it is, as you said, but also like, my God, there's, there's, it can be suffocating. There's not much relief there. <laughs> you need a little bit, of an, uh, of a kind of, uh, of an excursion. You need to kind of ventilate the thing in order to make it readable. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about, I have a kind of Baroque metaphor that I sometimes have in my head about this stuff where I think of, you know, um, a bullfighting metaphor where it's like, you know, um, I am the, 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 the bullfighter, <laughs> the book or the thing I am writing is the rag and the kind of emotional impulses or, or feelings behind it are the the bull. Um, and, uh, you know, and so the, the kind of, you know, there's always a, a kind of dance in which you're kind of, um, you know, keeping your own, or I'm always at least keeping my own, um, you know, my own kind of quotidian experience, my, you know, the kind of just boredom and suffering and, you know, all that stuff that we all kind of go through minute to minute and day to day, you know, that's, I, I'm, I'm, so it's sort of, you know, making the making the the book or the rag dance (laughs) but uh but you know if i if i stand directly behind it the book or those feelings will you know will 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 be impaled will impale me so let's start with f scott fitzgerald since that's where you start the book yeah um the 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 you know I, i will say about the people that are in the book was you know they're there were so many people that I considered writing about. There was a, you know, I kind of made this, this compendious list that was just almost impossibly long. And, and I wound up kind of winnowing them down, you know, in a way that it was, it was like a, like a tarot deck, you know, it was like the, all of these people are, are genuinely important to me. And, and certainly in the, in the way that they are described in the book, um, that is the case. But, but, um, 
but there was a selection involved and a sort of sense of like, you know, oh, I, you know, I, it wasn't going to be like all writers or all musicians or all filmmakers. I mean, it could have been, but I, I kind of chose, I kind of, there was some, some interesting choice making based on kind of what sort of archetype each one offered. Um, but Fitzgerald was always going to be there because he, because he was, you know, crucial to me and, and when I was a teenager and, and also I think still represents, you know, the kind of the ultimate, right. The, the, the idea of Gatsby being the kind of ultimate American, um, I, you know, avatar of a certain bogus kind of success <laughs> or bogus self and self reinvention and Fitzgerald himself being the kind of ultimate American avatar of a certain kind of, you know, a certain kind of ruin, a certain kind of collapse. Well, I think one of the thing, like the themes running through the book and, you know, a theme that follows the choices that you've uh, made in terms of who to write about is that there is a sense of like lost possibility, like what might have been. Certainly that was the case for F. Scott Fitzgerald, who, you know, all of this posthumous success that he's enjoyed kind of covers up the fact that when he died, like I want to say Gatsby was barely in print or had sold like 15 copies that year. And he thought it was a complete failure in his mind. I, he, he was a complete failure, you know, like he had I, washed up. I forget if this is still in the book, but he used to, he used to go, I think I may have, I had to sort of shorten that chapter a bit, but you know, he used to go into bookstores in LA and, and um, you know, and, and look for copies, which were very hard to find at the time. And it, once he did, and, and the, the store owner was absolutely amazed to discover um, that Fitzgerald was still alive, <laughs> you know, and he's like, Oh my God, like, you, you know, you're, you're still, you know, it's, it wasn't like, Oh my God, you're, you're, you, you're, you're Scott Fitzgerald who wrote this book. It's, you know, Oh my God, you're not dead. Um, so yeah, his, he was really, he was really considered to be, um, you know, he was as, as aired out in that respect as, as anyone could imagine. Yeah, and you write about that neighborhood. That's kind of my old neighborhood. When I first moved to Los Angeles, I lived in uh, in West Hollywood and was aware of the history, like like at least that bit of history. There's so much I miss, but I knew that F. Scott Fitzgerald had died on Hayworth right there by the Directors Guild. And every time I go past it, I think of him. Uh, you know, he was, what, 42 years old? 44? 44, yeah. I mean, my God, I'm older than him. I've outlived F. Scott Fitzgerald, knock on wood. Yeah, I know. You know, it's no. uh, it's crazy to think of, uh, like, what a meteoric ascent at such a young age and then how quickly it it ended for him. And yet, and yet, and yet, this is in the book, too, and I think no one really talks about this, which is that the book he was writing when he died would have been his best novel, um, and it, it, it really isn't. You know, I mean, The Last Tycoon is so gorgeous, or The Loves of the Last Tycoon, I guess is what it's now called. But it, it's so, um, and it's so different than his other work. You know, it's so, it's so kind of there's a there's a sort of sweetness to it, and a kind of a kind of calm that's 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 mesmerizing. I mean, I just think that book is incredible, even even as a fragment. You know, even even as the as the sort of uncompleted novel that it is, it's 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 perfect. I mean, I I. I I vastly prefer it to the great Gatsby, which I realize is a slightly kind of contentious statement, but I, but I, but I really do. I feel like F. Scott Fitzgerald had so much like raw, right? Like so much raw talent. Like he couldn't write a bad sentence. He, uh, he had, in my opinion, much, much more raw talent than, 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 than Hemingway ever did. Um, 
you know, I, I mean, this is again, kind of a sidebar, but I think, you know, he, he was, I, I don't know that he was, you know, you, you certainly can't quite call him as great as Faulkner, whose achievements were much vaster, but, um, but in terms of just, just talent and, and kind of under understanding or, or, or negative capability is really what the book, you know, kind of settles upon this, this kind of, you know, this, this ability to, to, to see things more than one way. I think that, that he really had more than any of his peers, um, you know, and, and of course what got in the way was his, his, uh, his drinking. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, he, he certainly could be a handful when he was drinking and I'm, you know, I don't want to paint him to be a saint, but my understanding of him based on what I've read is that he was a nice guy, uh, in ways that maybe Hemingway wasn't always, um, I know, you know, people are complicated. I'm sure they had great aspects and not so great aspects, but was, is that the wrong read on Fitzgerald? No, I, I think it probably is. I mean, look, I think that there are, there are people, uh, you know, people who are, who are great partisans of, of Zelda, um, Fitzgerald who, who believe that he, he stole her work or stole ideas. You know, there's, I, I can't speak to the, to the complexities of that relationship. And, uh, you know, I do know that, that like, like, many brutal alcoholics he was really um charmless would it be about the kindest thing you could say about him when he was when he was on a you know in his cups um but i do think that there was a a fundamental decency there you know he did he did look after take care of zelda you know keep pay for her medical upkeep and and write to her constantly and and the same with zelda with with scotty with his daughter with their daughter i think i think he was um you know, a complicated, but in many ways, decent father. I think, I think he was, um, a decent man who, who was, um, less decent when he was, um, in the, in the grips of his addiction. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I'm now recalling, uh, I want to say it's like Kate Zambrino's heroines, that book where I read about like, you know, uh, how he got a lot of his ideas from Zelda I think there's some truth to that. The modernist women, I feel like there's some truth to the, you know, the ways in which a partnership or a marriage, especially one that's peopled by two creative people. Um, yes. And especially in that era could involve like theft is, and oppression. There is for sure. I mean, look, there is there. I think that's, that's unquestionable. You know, I'm sure that Zelda's contributions to his work were greater than he acknowledged, um, or greater than greater than were acknowledged, just broadly speaking, too, because of the because of the era and because that's the way that's the way it's often been for for artists who are women, which is also in the book. But I think, um, you know, I did he was it theft? I'm I'm a little less convinced of that. Um, you know, I am convinced that Zelda's own work deserved a far greater you know, kind of platform and far greater opportunity. Um, but I don't know to what extent one can really persuasively paint Fitzgerald as, as the arch villain of her story either. So, uh, other people that you write about in the book, um, Carol Eastman. Oh man. I, and here, like, again, like this isn't, this is one of the, the pitfalls of me, uh, talking to somebody who's written, uh, a book of cultural criticism is that like I read the book and I'm happy to have read it. And, you know, especially in the context of my schedule, I'm like, yes, I got it done. But then there are so many things that you're talking about in the book that if I were to be a completist about it, I would have to watch or read or study up on. And I can find myself, uh, 
having to acknowledge my own cultural blind spots when I read books like this. And Carol Eastman uh, would be one of them. I was like, man, and Frank and Eleanor Perry, like these are people that just missed me or I missed those them. Those are not, those are not well known. I mean, you know, I think those, those are people whose, whose bodies of work are, are, you know, celebrated by film enthusiasts, but I think most people don't have any idea of who they are. And, you know, there's, there's two, two things I'll, I'll note here. One of them is that, um, you know, hopefully this book works without an encyclopedic knowledge of the people that are in it. Um, hopefully it will spur kind of curiosity to investigate those people at one's leisure, the one's possibly non-existent leisure. Um, and also, you know, the sense that one's cultural blind spots are enormous. I mean, everybody's are, My, mine are, mine are, uh, you know, it's, it's just every day one wakes up and looks at the, the kind of catalog of world literature and world cinema that one knows nothing about and thinks, uh, <laughs> I'm a, you know, I, I mean, it's like my, my, I would be, my thimble full of knowledge is, is quarter full at best. You know, you, it's just, it's just one of those things where, you know, even if you've kind of devoted a lifetime to, to inhaling works of art, um, if you're honest, you will always know that what you, what you've inhaled and what you've ingested is like the tiniest fraction of what, you know, what, what one really ought to, ought to know. <laughs> okay. So yeah, point taken. And I, I would have to agree. Um, yeah. you know, you have to kind of go easy on yourself at a certain point. There's nobody who can read it all or see it all or listen to it all. But, right. uh, I think also for the listener, I want to underscore the fact that it was entirely satisfying for me to read about and learn about Carol Eastman, just as an example, um, having not come to the book with a great working knowledge or any working knowledge. Yeah. Um, so just for people listening, like you don't have to, to know, to, to, God, to I, thoroughly I hope, enjoy I it. So. I, and I, mean, you know. I think to your credit, you raise these people to a kind of like mythic status, um, like to the point where like, I'm like, Oh my God, I got to go, uh, watch five easy pieces again. And I want to, I'm like searching the internet for Carol Eastman. There's not much out there. Very and little. Yeah. I want to talk about that in particular, because I think what makes her such a fascinating figure is not only the talent and the fact that she crossed paths with a lot of people that we would know about, like she was kind of there at the beginning with Jack Nicholson and very, very involved with Jack and, and also with Warren Beatty, um, you know, never romantically with either of them, which I feel like is kind of a, kind of a, maybe a sterling achievement unto itself, just, <laughs> just considering how relentless the sort of sedu seductive men who surrounded her were, were sort of known to be, um, you know, but yeah, she, she, she had a lot of interesting intersections in that way. Okay. And yeah, I mean, like obviously, and that, that's part of her allure and what makes her compelling. But I think what makes her most compelling is the fact that she was so interested in anonymity in a town yeah. where everybody is striving for pretty much the exact opposite. And this wasn't like a passing phase or some sort of put on, like she really didn't want the limelight. Apparently not, um, you know, I mean, and, and just her kind of reluctance to be photographed um, was was a big thing. Um, she did not like cameras. She did not like airplanes. I mean, a lot a lot of a lot of those things are, are true. And and I think, you know, it, it's part of her work is so. So remarkable. And, you know, what's frustrating is that the, the best of it is in a, you know, is, is in boxes at the at the Perry Ransom Center in Texas. I, I have no idea whether 
anyone other than myself and the person who originally archived them has ever gone through them. Um, one thing I did discover after writing the book was that, or very late in the game while I was finishing it, is that um, Michael Silverblatt, the great KCRW host, um, was Eastman's closest friend for many years. Um, and so um, so he had kind of wonderful remembrances and, and um, you know, information about, about her that, that um, uh, you know, I wish I could have interpolated more of that into the book, but, but uh, you know. So, so he was, but he was forthcoming. You got to talk to him about her? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did. And, um, and, uh, but, you know, he, he really adored her and really, really, you know, I think considers her correctly. I would, I would say too, to have been a, an enormous genius. Um, someone that, someone who's, who's kind of, you know, produced and available work represents the the kind of barest flakes off of an incredibly uh, deep uh, sensibility and and talent. You know, and I used to live on the same street as her. I lived on Westmount back in oh, the day. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. For for like a yeah. couple of years when I met my wife, I was living on Westmount. I don't, when did Carol Eastman die? She died. 2000. I want to say 2006. Could have been 2003. Okay, but she wasn't. Um, was she living on Westmount in those days, or no? But... I, I, I think so. Yeah, I think that's where she was at the end. Jesus. Um, so I was her neighbor, and like Warren Zevon died on Kings Road. I could have. Uh, I didn't know. You know, I'm walking around these neighborhoods. I have no idea who my neighbors are. <laughs> yeah. Well, you no, know, that's a thing. But that's a thing that I think is, you know, hopefully the the, the book kind of this is a kind of you know impression that it will leave. You know, there's something beautiful about you know, the kind of ghost presences of artists or kind of our understanding that what we see, what we read represents, I mean, you know, and everybody who's ever written a book knows this, that it's like, you know, that, that you're kind of pressing this book out into the world and there's just like an entire life or years of labor that kind of precede it and years of life that preceded. And, and, you know, and, and, and I think part of the kind of pleasure of focusing in, in many cases on some of these lesser known artists is just, is just that kind of wonderful sense that like there's always somebody there's always more out there for you to for you to find you know and and not just not just kind of stuff in the future to find but like you know there's always you know art from the past or the present that is kind of happening outside one's ken <laughs> and and i find that notion incredibly consoling um you know that it that that one doesn't just sit there and kind of wait for entertainment weekly to kind of push its its most anticipated books of the fall list out into the world, <laughs> you know, to know what to, to, to read. Um, you know, there's, there's always, there's always so much wonderful work that one hasn't found yet. Okay. And along the lines of Carol Eastman and Hollywood screenwriting, something that haunts me and that I wonder about is how many great scripts unproduced are shelved somewhere in this town or have been put into a paper shredder, or live on somebody's hard drive. Thousands, thousands, literally thousands. And, and they're um, and they're masterpieces waiting to be yes. made. Yes, they, or or masterpieces. You know, the the one that I've been dying to read. You know, you mentioned Carol Eastman. Carol Eastman's brother Charles, um, who was also a, a kind of fascinating and incredible writer, who whose body of work or body of available work is even smaller than 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 Carol Eastman's. He wrote a script apparently that was started circulating in the early sixties called honey bear. I think I love you. Um, which is strangely similar to, um, to the more recent 
Father John Misty album title, so I've always wondered whether he stole it. But apparently this script was, I mean, for decades, even even in the last decade, I think Sean Penn had his hooks in it and was kind of looking to do something with it. Um, that script is the script that um, that Robert Town credits with, you know, he sort of said, oh, I read that script in, you know, in, in the 60s and it, it opened up a whole vernacular of writing for me. I didn't realize that screenplays could do that. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's very little information about it. Apparently, you know, it's, I read it somewhere described as um, about, a, about a, an emotionally disturbed young man's attachment to a, um, to a uh, high school girl or something like that, which sounds a little gross and creepy, maybe a lot gross and creepy, like Lolita-like. Um, but maybe it's more like a, a kind of reverse Harold and Maude. I mean, you know, <laughs> um, it's hard to know. But, you know, that's a perfect example of a, of a script. I think there's a there's a copy of it of a at a library in Bowling Green, Ohio, I believe, um, that I would like someday to get my hands on. I'm sure there are other copies of it too, but you you can't find it. It's not you know it's not it's nowhere on the internet or anything like that. It's just out there in the in the archives. And and you know as we know, um, you know that the number of great films in the world is is dwarfed by the number of great unproduced films that could have been <laughs> well I, that's what i mean because i like whenever i see a great film i marvel at it i think more than i marvel at a great novel simply because of the human the human politics involved in getting a movie yes. made yes it's, it's amazing to me that a good one is ever made it's amazing that a great film has ever been made considering what hell it is to get a movie made <laughs> Well, it's the kind of thing that that really should maybe give us like the barest inkling of hope for uh, democracy. And I, I mean, I, I know that sounds kind of insane, but but what I mean is is that you know generally when when you you know it's it's almost impossible to get a plurality of people to kind of unify around a goal um, and achieve that goal in ways that aren't just um, you know that that aren't just successful, but which might actually kind of transcend the sum of its parts, right? Um, you know, it's, that's almost impossible. It's like, you know, there are many movies and even many great movies that you can, so that you can kind of go, Oh, you know, that, that, that's actually flawed by, you know, like such and such a performance, <laughs> you know, you know, too bad, the, too bad. The script isn't quite as good as everything else. Um, but every once in a while there's, there's one that comes along and you think, Holy shit, that's, that's greater than the, that's, that's so much greater than any of its parts. You know, it, it, it transcends those parts to become something, you know, even more majestic than that. And, um, you know, that's, that's, um, that's an amazing thing. And, and yeah, I feel, I feel that way about, about movies too. It's, it's incredible that, that, um, you know, that, that people are ever able to, to make a great piece of art in concert. I think there, I mean, I guess if I were to give credit or to, to point to what, like one of the parts, you know, that is most crucial, uh, in the assembly, I guess it's the director because certain directors seem to be able to create that magic on a somewhat consistent basis, or at least on a repeat basis. Um, but then, you know, without the script, what are they going to do? And yeah, I would, I would actually say the, the interesting thing, cause of course, you know, we still kind of fetishize directors on some level and, and, you know, not, not entirely wrongly. So it's like a Robert Altman or a, you know, or a, or a Scorsese or, you know, it's like, these are, they do it again and again and again, they deserve it. Um, you know, but of course movies are a collaborative medium. No director can do anything alone. 
Um, great directors tend to have repeat collaborators <laughs> a lot of the time, which I think is telling, you know, and some of those collaborators are, you know, what that, I don't just mean like they might work repeatedly with the same actors or, you know, or, or more than once with the same writer. They also frequently work with the same cinematographer, the same, uh, the same editor, um, you know, and I think, you know, film editors are the, are the, the unacknowledged legislators of the, of the world. They're the, <laughs> you know, I think anybody who ever had the good luck to work with someone like Walter Murch, who should be as much of a household name as, as, you know, as some of those directors, um, would agree with this. You know, it's, it's, um, directors deserve a lot of credit, but I think almost never do they deserve quite as much credit as they reap by themselves. Yeah, they're like the quarterback of the football team or whatever. Yeah. You know, all the glory, yeah. but also but also if the movie tanks like with Michael Cimino and Heaven Skate or whatever like Yeah. They you... they wear it. They wear that they wear the failure of it. That's exactly right. Um but though, though not always. You know, sometimes I mean I think you know there's that Carol Eastman movie The Fortune, Mike Nichols directing a Carol Eastman script starring Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty. Um, the movie was a failure. It has some interesting things to recommend it, but it's, you know, it's not a great movie quite, although the Coen brothers and other people think that it is. Um, but, uh, but it is Eastman who wore the, who, who wore the egg on that one. It was just like, Oh, you know, she, she wrote a, she wrote a, she wrote a bad script. The script wasn't that good. And, um, you know, the script probably had problems, um, in its, in its reduced form, which is what they shot. But it's also like, well, no, the failure got pushed off on the person who, on the least powerful person in the room. You know, it's it's interesting to talk about movie failures because I can sometimes enjoy, in the weirdest way, a, a train wreck of a movie. And I think I'm viewing it through the lens of a creator. Yeah. Uh, I want to, I'll point to like a recent example where I'm like trying to fall asleep. I'm flipping channels and I land on this like teen romance movie called, uh, take me home tonight. <laughs> and it was like, Oh God, like Topher Grace, I think was the actor and nobody else that I know. I don't know anybody yeah. else in the movie, but like, I just, I don't know. Those kinds of movies like, can be kind of like comfort food or something like teen movies or you know, kind of hearkening back to the movies of my childhood, you know, like, Oh, the... oh ab absolutely. And I, I think that's another, you know, this is another thing, which is that, you know, not, not everything. I think, you know, a, a life that is full only of masterpieces, you know, or, or a life where you're sort of like, I only want to watch the great, I won't, I only want to, I, I only want to read the sort of, you know, towering canonical classics. I only want to watch the, this, you know, it's, that's like a life without, without cheeseburgers, you know, what kind of life is that at all? Yeah. You know, it's like, I think, and there's certainly there's also places in this book where I, you know, I discuss a lot of art, maybe even most of the stuff in in the, in the book is, you know, involves stuff that's flawed or stuff that isn't stuff that is imperfect. And I think, you know, that, that, that can be the best. Well, this movie, like the, the, the what became interesting to me as I was watching it, cause it's, re it really does not work like profoundly, uh, <laughs> profoundly. Yeah. So like it does yeah. not work. And yeah. I mean, you know, it's like a, it's like watching a train wreck to some extent, but it's an interesting train wreck because I think, and I could be wrong, but it felt like the director was trying to make like a less than zero kind of thing. Uh -huh. Like the characters are doing cocaine or at least one of the characters is there's this whole cocaine, like B story. <laughs> right, right, right. And you're like, but it doesn't really come off accurately. Like it's sort of goofy and like weird and, um, 
I don't know. And I got sort of like invested in this, like, well, what was going on behind the scenes? And what did the original script look like? And, you know, you can start no, to I kind of tease it. these things apart. I love doing that sometimes. I mean, again, it's, you know, that, 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 that can be the most, most rewarding kind of watch where you're just like, what, what are they going for here? And you, you kind of start to see what they're, what they're looking for, but the, but the pieces are obviously in conflict. Um, you know, I, I, I got lost the other night watching a, watching a movie that no one talks about a 1965 Warren Beatty movie called Mickey one, um, which is not by any, you know, it's just not really a good movie, but it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's like, you can sort of be like, Oh, it's like there, he was trying to do Truffaut and he was kind of trying to do a hard day's night. And he was kind of trying to do Fellini, like, you know, and there's this kind of weird, like Chaplin esque quality to it. And you're just like, this is a, this is a mess, but it's also kind of incredible. <laughs> right, I love it. Right. <laughs> um, so I want to talk to you a little bit. I mean, we can't get to everybody, but I want to talk to you about Warren Zevon. Yeah, please. Um, yeah. Because, uh, you know, I'm a fan of his music, his music, you know, you are as well. And, and his music has kind of played a role in, in your life. And especially at a pivotal moment, there's a really poignant scene where his music factors in. Um, but, you know, kind of like the, the other figures in the book, there is a sense of what might have been Warren Zevon as a rock star is a particular kind of figure, kind of never made a bad album critics always loved him had the respect of his peers but never really busted out and became like you know a springsteen or a, a bob and dylan I, or you know one of these like major rock star figures you know he was always I'm sure that and i'm sure that bothered him yeah of course or at least i would expect that it did um yeah right i mean that 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 weird spot of being kind of like famous adjacent or sort of like being the guy where you kind of like you know, he comes out to LA in the seventies and the Eagles are playing on his records and Linda Ronstadt is like recording his songs and making hits out of them. Um, you know, and you're, you know, he must've felt then like, Oh, you know, it's all happening. <laughs> I'm the man. And, um, you know, and then other than kind of werewolves of London, the one song everybody knows, it didn't happen for him. And he had 30 years of recording. And of course, all of his kind of, um, you know, personal and characterological problems, which are also in the book. Um, you know, I think, I think of that chapter as being one that kind of meditates a little on that, that sticky question of our times, you know, what, what do you do with, with, with great art by, by people who are themselves and not the, not so great in their private lives. Yeah. Um, I was just talking about this, uh, on the show with, uh, a recent guest named Greg Gerke, who's also yeah. written some cultural criticism. Yeah. And we were talking about like Woody Allen is like the, you know, a, a obvious example, but you could point to any number of people. Um, I think yeah. we were pointing to Marlon Brando and I don't yeah. know, not many people can survive under the microscope, but some, some of their, you know, some of these people, their offenses are really grotesque and like, what do you do? And it's a, I guess it's a good question. I, I think I sort of fall into the camp that the art and the artist have to live separately. Otherwise you're going to be in a never ending process of, um, burying, I mean, like how much art is even going to be watchable? Like, I don't know how yeah, many. Well, there's, there is, there, there's certainly that question, right? Because I think it, depending on, I mean, Woody Allen is the, <laughs> I, I, I'll never, I, I've vowed on social media and elsewhere never to wade into Woody Allen discourse. You know, right, I have, right. my, I have my own <laughs> opinions about what transpired there and, and those opinions have, have changed. 
across time and and they haven't really affected my view of his films which I was very fond of when I was younger and and now I find even the ones I liked don't quite hold up for me as as movies um at least not the way that movies I care more about do um but I think you know I think it I mean one I think we are in a kind of very very intense time where the kind of legacy of every artist is being aggressively reassessed um you know and one can decide for oneself whether one thinks it's being reassessed fairly or being reassessed uh, hyper aggressively <laughs> and i i sort of have a feeling that that you know over the span of human history those reassessments will themselves be re reassessed um and we might gain a kind of more flexible sense of of context regain a more flexible sense of context you know i i think it's very tricky for me to try to judge, you know, people who were acting badly in accordance with the shitty standards of 1971 by the standards of 19 of, of 2021. You know, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, you know, p- people tend to behave in, in, in harmony or in conflict with the, with the standards, you know, with the behavioral standards of their time. But I think it varies from artist to artist for me. You know, there, there are some artists where I think, well, they are a little diminished. The, the art is a little diminished for me by knowing what I know about them personally. Um, you know, there are other instances where, I mean, Roman Polanski is kind of a perfect example where it's like, you know, obviously he statutorily raped a teenager. That's not acceptable in any world. Um, but also those movies are masterpieces. I'm not, I'm not living in a world where I'm not watching Chinatown or the tenant or knife slits water, or, you know, um, repulsion you know they're masterpieces and and um to say otherwise is ridiculous and and to sort of deprive yourself of them because he was a a you know a a very problematic man uh is a is an okay thing to do but it's you know you're losing something in doing that i think um yeah yeah, it's tough and i think uh I don't know. I've been like arguing with myself lately where I'm like, well, if somebody's done something that terrible, like maybe you don't like bury all the art uh, and deprive yourself of the art, but maybe they shouldn't have the opportunity to continue at their current station, you know, like being able to make movies and get financed. And unless there's some sort of, uh, you know, uh, penance, you know, unless there's a, a real admission of guilt and a time served kind of thing, I don't want to bury somebody forever if they're genuinely sorry or something. But I, you know, there are certain things that I don't think you should be able to come back from. And yeah, it's a very, it's, you know, again, I think that there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of collapse around this question. Like I, I, I agree with you. There are some things you should be able to come back from. There's some things you shouldn't. There are people who should not be able to continue to earn a living (laughs) or earn what they have. You know, there are, there are other people who I think probably have been slightly over punished or even more, overpunished more than slightly overpunished for, you know, for, you know, aggravated misdemeanors or less complex felonies. We'll call them that. Um, you you know, (laughs) I, I don't mean that literally. I mean, you know, on the, on the kind of moral scale of, of things. I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of confusion around that, around that question more, more than we'll be able to solve in this conversation for sure. But, but, um, but yeah, I think that, I, I think that that there are varying, you know, it, it all kind of exists on a on a one's one's tolerance for that is a is a personal matter. Yeah, and I think like just in the context of somebody like Zevon, um, 
who you know bared his soul in his music obviously a very complicated guy but i can find myself especially when somebody is seen in the context of their times um, but also who is so clearly struggling with addiction yes uh, i can find myself at least taking that into account when it's like oh well he threw a potted plant at somebody well it's like yeah he was like you know coked up and wasted you know it's three o'clock yeah. in the morning like yeah that's exactly right that's very different than the than than the same act sober and i think you know in zivon's case too where you know the songs themselves are so mordant and dark and and you know he doesn't he certainly doesn't let himself off the hook in any of them you know i mean i think that's sort of the point of them you know they're they're so they remain i mean he remains such an incredibly uh just a, he's just such a startlingly wonderful songwriter um you know it's 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 amazing just certain couplets you know you you can't let go of you hear them once and they're with you forever and such a funny guy too he, his work had such great wit or has such great wit and i think you know since we've talked about carol eastman and warren zevon i don't know if they're the only two um subjects in the book who are from southern california but yeah, that's a good, uh, McGuane is not, the Perry's are not, um, Ashby was not, Chimino was not, uh, Renata Adler certainly was not, uh, Tuesday Weld. Ah, no, she was know, back oh, East. She was back. Yeah, east. that's right. Right. They yeah. came out. So, so yeah, that's but it. They have great, I mean, these personal histories, like, like Zivon, I did, I did not know. So it was fun for me to read and find out about where he came from, like his father and like his possible gangster connections Stumpy. and. <laughs> it makes sense it made warren zevon you know it was like oh of course like it didn't surprise me at all to learn that he had come up in la you know mid-century with a father who was uh, kind of uh, a touch shady shall we say he owned a carpet store that's the other thing that, or a rug store he, he, he that was stumpy's front business at least was that he owned a he owned a carpet store which i love <laughs> yeah yeah this is great yeah um i want to talk I want to get back to talking about success uh, and failure and the multifaceted nature of any place, but especially a place as big as Los Angeles. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend just a day or two ago and was kind of lamenting the fact that, you know, Hollywood can often seem to reward assholes. Um, well, it, that used it, it used to, uh, you know, and, and I guess even as recently as as Army Hammer, uh, it has continued to, but uh, but uh, less and less, yeah, yeah, and yeah, and for the good, but it like requires. I think I was, I think I was like lamenting, like, like does success in this town, especially in the entertainment industry, require a certain like psychosis? <laughs> like, do you have to be hyper competitive and? Do you have to have a kind of cold bloodedness? And, um, and then I started, we started talking further and it was like, you know, if you, there's so many obviously good and decent people who come into this business and who might get turned by it because there are cultural norms within the business that might be pretty inhuman, but that become accepted and widely practiced and, we were wondering at why. And then we started talking about Harvey Weinstein, uh, Scott Rudin, uh, figures like this who, you know, at least in my adult lifetime, 
if you think about the movies that people like you and I would probably gravitate towards and admire, so much of it, not all of it, obviously, but so much of it is flowed from guys like that, like these who, yes, yes, right. for all of their talents, you know, are kind of monstrous in their personal behavior. And if they're or, the ones or, on or, high who are yeah. setting the tone, like it makes sense to me that you would have like a kind of a pervasive toxicity, like that it would spread and that it would become sanctioned in a way. Yes, yes, for sure. And it's interesting that those two who really are, you know, I think there are plenty of monstrous people in Hollywood, but those are the two, two of the biggest over the last couple of decades. And, and it's interesting that those would have been the ones to sort of be, you know, keepers of a certain kind of highbrow, uh, you know, uh, strand of filmmaking, you know, and, and obviously this business has always attracted broken people. I don't think that's entirely unique. In other words, I, I think the world is crawling with broken people and, and, you know, the, the, the broken most ones are often the ones with the most ambition or the most kind of compensatory drive, you know, to become successful in certain ways. Um, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that the business is becoming a lot less hospitable, um, you know, possibly even terminally inhospitable to that kind of behavior. Um, I think, uh, but you know, yes, I do think, I do think that, that, you know, just by nature of the fact that, that people who are, who are suffering, um, people who, who think ill of themselves or who are kind of driven to escape, uh, you know, aspects of, of their history that they are uncomfortable with, you know, those are, those are people that often do have the, the kind of drive to, to, to come here and, and, and to make art in general, right? I, I don't know how much art is making is made by people that are altogether healthy, <laughs> which is, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it, again, healthy is a kind of a weird word. It's such a, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with it because I think, you know, I, I don't know what standards of health, uh, attain, but you know, for whatever reason, our, our, our culture at large and our capitalist culture is broken in ways that facilitate that have, that, that have always facilitated, different kinds of abuse. Well, and okay. And agreed. And I think sometimes in my more sour moods, I can want to paint with that broad brush and just be like, this whole place is fucked. And yeah. it's like, yeah. a, it's like a Petri dish full of disease and all the, you know, all the ways we could characterize it. But, um, you as somebody who, you know, was born and raised here and grew up in a quote unquote Hollywood family and kind of had a ringside seat uh, to some extent to, this culture, you know, this entertainment industry culture through the work of your father and to some extent your mother, you know, you ha don't have to look any further than your own dad to know that somebody can work through the the system or whatever you want to call it and yeah. remain and retain a fundamental decency. Yes. My, my father is a very, very, very decent man, which is, which is, um, astonishing considering the, the world that he's, you know, lived in and worked in for, you know, more than half a century. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I think that's, that's kind of, that's helped me. Both of my parents were, were really very, very ethical people. Um, and, uh, you know, very, very imperfect people, very, very ethical people. Um, and, you know, likewise, I think that, you know, it's, it's funny that I, I, I think about this book and, and I think the book kind of makes this explicit too, is, you know, by the time you get to the end of it, it's not really about the movies at all. It's, it's about a certain kind of moral and maybe even spiritual education, um, you know, 
and 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 those questions of course are are the questions of of art <laughs> um you know those questions of of um how to be and and um i was thinking this morning about how you know the question that this book kind of opens with is the question that you know that every artist and every young artist probably has which is you know um what is art going to do for me? <laughs> you know, if I write this book, will I blow up? How do I, you know, how do I succeed in that regard? Um, you know, and, and how certainly for me now, you know, the questions in, in writing things tend to revolve a little bit more around what are my responsibilities in writing this? Um, you know, to, to whom am I responsible? Uh, you know, to, to what, what is the, what is the, you know, what, what are the, the rights and responsibilities that come with, with being a work of art, being, being a working artist and how that's kind of, you know, that's, that's what growing up is. I think that's a much more adult question than, um, you know, how do I become successful? Yeah. It's interesting to say that your, your book is about your own moral and spiritual education, uh, I think I sensed that I was, as I was reading, but I never maybe said it as explicitly to myself. Um, but it's working on deep levels and it's got a lot of heart in it. And I found, I think most touching the parts of it where you were getting honest about just like this sense of expectation that we might have for ourselves in our younger years and how that might not match up with how things go, which I think is yes. the case for most all of us. But then also, um, the you know, a, a moral and spiritual education, but also I think an attempt to understand not just yourself, but um, in particular your mother better. To get to a place of understanding and forgiveness, maybe by looking through the lives of some of the art, you know, the artists that we've we've touched on, you know, and and some that we haven't. Yeah. I mean, look, this is, again, this goes far outside the question of, of art. You know, we, we, when we are children and when we are the, the, you know, when we, when we are children, I mean, not just literal children, but when we are, you know, in our lives as the children of other people, we so often kind of look at, you know, these, these moments of, of cruelty or disappointment or, you know, being let down by our parents as if those are the things that comprehensively define who they are instead of, you know, just, uh, just, you know, just experiences, you know, and probably regrettable ones, you know, that they were for, for our, our parents as people. Um, you know, and I think, I think all of us have, have had, all of us who have kids have had the experience of, you know, you, you'll, your, your child will say something and, you know, your response will be suboptimal. Hopefully not, you know, not like my mom won't involve like projectiles and, and, abusive verbal tongue lashings. But, you know, there are moments where you kind of go, God, I wish I hadn't said that, or I wish I had been a little bit, you know, I wish I had been more present in that moment or that moment. You know, you, you, it's, it's completely different. It's like you, you understand that, that being a parent for everybody is, is only a part of, of who you are <laughs> for everybody who is a parent. Um, you know, and that, that it's, you know, that it's very hard to harmonize that part of your life sometimes with, um, you know, with, with the rest of it. Um, you know, and, and so, yeah, that the book definitely looks at my mother in that way and, and sort of tries to find, um, you know, a more expansive view of her than I had when I was a teenager and, and she was drinking like a, you know, maniac and, and behaving not so well. So there is a period in your life, I guess it would have been what in your twenties when you lived in New York 
and you were working for who you whom you refer to as the actor yes um <laughs> yes the the actor in that case i mean the it's funny. The book conceals a few identities, and and in one or two cases, it's sort of meant to for for personal reasons, it's meant to be somewhat blurry. But in that case, it's supposed to be fairly clear that the actor is is De Niro, which is who it was. Okay, because I was going to say, I was going to go just jump in and say, I think it's De Niro. You don't have it's to confirm de- or deny. It's, it's it's definitely De Niro, and and the, you know some of this some of these periods will be addressed in the book that I'm writing now. So that, that yes, it was that's who it was. Okay, so. To continue along this thread of like success and failure, uh, you know, these themes, you know, you, I think were working your way towards the writing career that you, that you have now, but for a long time, you know, you weren't there and were feeling like, you you know, you weren't where you wanted to be, which again, totally relatable. But I think for some people looking at your life, like some readers would look at your life and be like, wow, like if this is failure, you know, this guy's working for De Niro or he's, (laughs) you know, he's living in, uh, you know, Santa Monica, uh, you know, to somebody who might be, um, you know, from a different background or lives in a place that's maybe not quite so dynamic and exciting. It could seem, um, like a pretty good option. (laughs) Uh, but I, I think at the same time being that close to people who have this kind of mega success, like, you know, working for De Niro and having proximity to his world, um, in lower Manhattan, especially, which is like his home turf and all that kind of stuff might actually heighten one sense of failure because you're able to see the gulf, <laughs> you know, the divide. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, I, I, I can say a few things about that one, you know, I, I will say one sense of, of success. I mean, the, the kind of, the weirdest thing about it for everybody is that is that most people don't even know when they have it or to what extent they have it. Um, you know, and I, and I think that's, that's particularly true for writers where, you know, everybody sort of says, Oh, you know, I, I you know, like I, I, I don't have this or I don't have that, you know, you're constantly kind of looking at the accolades you don't have. And, you know, I mean, I, 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 I am aware that, 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 you know, by any reasonable contemporary standard, like I am a success as a writer. I, I, I was even while I was writing this book. Um, but, um, but, uh, but I also think that, you know, that kind of like mega standard that gets set around the movies and not just in the movies, right? It's like by now the whole media ecosystem kind of revolves around certain notions of, of success and, you know, working for someone like, uh, Bob, uh, <laughs> I have to call him Bob. Uh, but, I, but I, I don't want to pretend, you know, I, I mean, I was, I was, you know, an employee of his, I was not his. I was not his buddy. I was not palling around in his retinue. Uh, you know, there were there were you know people above me, people between me and him, that kind of thing. But certainly, when when I when I worked for him, you know, the impression that I had was that he was a very and, and I'm sure this is still true, you know, a, a private person and an, and an actor and someone who was you know acutely uncomfortable with, um, you know, the kind of. Uh, business of being a, a celebrity. Um, you know, I, I don't think that was really ever a thing that interested him very much. Um, you know, I think he was, I think he was interested in, in acting in the art of being an actor. Um, so, um, you know, that was an interesting lesson too. I think, I think even at the time I was, I might've been looking at him and sort of thinking, Oh, you know, that's a standard of success, albeit not one that I ever aspired to personally, but, also looking at him and sort of thinking, oh, you know, that is that is an artist in conflict with 
certain expectations that have been placed there by success. I always found it sort of charming how bad he was or has been in interviews. Uh, yeah, because I don't think he likes to give them. <laughs> I think he's a shy. I think he's a shy, a very shy person. Um, I mean, again, I don't. I don't. Don't pretend to know him well enough, certainly, to have any kind of a right to to define him, uh, in you know, to other people. But but my impression was of someone who was who was fundamentally pretty shy. Hmm. So. When it comes to especially like the world of Hollywood and the maintenance of one's dignity, uh, there are people who can do it. Your dad pulled it off. Uh, Tom Hanks. <laughs> he's yeah, like, sure. He's like the paragon yeah. of like nice Hollywood celebrity, you know, maybe to a degree yes. that probably annoys him. But I think he's a nice guy. And not... I, I would argue, I would argue that, that plenty of people would do have, have done it. I think George Clooney has done it. And I think and I think loads of people who aren't who aren't stars, which is, by the way, most of the people who work in Hollywood um, have also managed it. OK, but for people, you know, at a high level of success and right. maybe who are dealing with the spotlight or just like tons and tons of money. Yes. The question yes. becomes like how, like what is it that, that allows these? maybe they just were raised well and they have a certain moral code that's etched into them from the jump that they've been able to carry forward. Or I'm wondering if you have any insight into that, having borne closer witness than most people to um, people in this business and actors and, you know, high level people. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I, you know, I, I think, um, I think being able to kind of insulate yourself a little bit <laughs> or maybe even more than a little bit from, um, <clears throat> I feel like I talked about that. I just, I just, somebody asked me a similar question recently. And I think, I think having a certain dedication to things that aren't just the trappings of success, you know, I mean, you know, whether that's really like a, a real fixation on the work itself, you know, um, or, um, you know, or something outside that it could be a family, it could be, you know, any number of things, but, but, you know, some, some area of focus, real focus, like primary focus outside the business of movie making. I think that's probably the first key constituent, um, you know, and I think there's also just a kind of fundamental quality of temperament, um, you know, um, probably having, having enough clarity that you, that you were inclined to really pay attention or listen to other people, you know, that that's probably helpful. Um, you know, I think what kind of dooms you is if you aren't fully anchored in, in the work as an artistic pursuit <laughs> and you don't have, uh, other attachments, other forms of attachment, um, that can sort of, you know, keep your focus, uh, scaled on a human level. That's when I think you're in trouble. And I think very, very few people, maybe nobody, um, kind of makes it through the the mouth of the machine if they don't have those things without being deformed by it. I think too, or I've had the thought in the past that having close friends and family, like a circle of people around you who you can rely on to tell you when you're full of shit. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, that's part of what I'm talking about. Having having that, having you know, having a a system or having a, a, you know, a relational arrangement where you do not, where you, you are not magnified, where you, your, your day-to-day -day behaviors and decisions are mirrored back to you 
um, in some way that allows them to retain their reality and their sense of scale. Um, you have to have people who are able to say no to you. Um, you know, and I think that becomes a problem. You know, I think a lot of, a lot of actors, a lot of people who get into one thing and, you know, and then people are sort of telling them, why don't you write a book or why don't you make an album? And, and nobody is really telling them like, don't do that. It sucks. Right. <laughs> no. Right. Yeah. I mean, That's... I can't imagine anything worse than having nobody around me who has either the courage or the insight to tell me when I'm being a jackass. Like that's a dangerous place to be. Uh, and I can also very easily imagine how it could happen. You know, somebody gets super famous and super wealthy. I mean, there's nothing but people lining up to be yes men and yes women, you know, like there's, there's plenty of people who will happily take that role. That's exactly right. You know, I watched a, a kind of documentary the other night on the Criterion channel about Dennis Hopper. Um, and you know, and, it's fascinating. Hopper's a pretty amazing dude, but there's definitely some footage and some sort of glimpses of him right after Easy Rider had had blown up. And, you know, you're kind of looking at the people that are he's hanging around and the people that are close to him at that time and just thinking, this is bad. You know, everybody's just trying to everybody's just trying to to, you know, butter him up minute to minute, hour to hour. Um, and the, the consequences of it don't come out that brightly. <laughs> yeah. He had a rough period. Right. But I think like maybe later, uh, later in his career, he, yeah, very, very, no, very much. I think he, he, you know, blue velvet really restored him as an actor and, you know, and, and it's not that he didn't do some, some great work, but his, the seventies were a real wilderness period for him. That's for sure. Well, we all have our wilderness periods, right? Or most of us do, but good <laughs> <Yeah>. ones. <laughs> we, we do. And I mean, and we should, I mean, if you've never had one, I think that's not helpful. You know, there are certain certain uh, humiliating and, and leveling experiences that we, we should all have, and, and almost all of us do. I mean, I think if, if you don't, you're either not living honestly or you're, you're you know, so lucky as to, be, as to be basically cursed beyond hope. Well, okay, that's an interesting point because I think on the surface, most of us would think like, you know what, I'd love to have tons and tons of success and fame and money and be insulated from a lot of like the trivial suffering that, uh, characterizes most human existence. You know what I'm saying? To have, uh, the house with a pool and the nice car and not have to worry about all the bullshit of day to day. And yet, uh, and yet, and yet I think that there is like, as you just said, there's a danger in that. Um, like, and if you're, if you're struggling and you're suffering a lot, I do think it breeds empathy or hopefully it does, but rather than bitterness, <laughs> maybe a little it's, of both, but I it, think it, it breeds can. empathy. It doesn't always, but it, but it can. And, and it, it may be the only thing that really does. That's the thing. You know, it's like, I, I think that, um, it's very hard to attain, uh, you know, empathy for nothing, <laughs> uh, or perspective for nothing. I think I prefer empathy is one of those words that gets thrown around a lot. And I, I sometimes, I sometimes wonder about it. I think, you know, it's like the prince's bride. Like, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, you know, pr- perspective and, and, a and a, and a sense of kind of relational awareness. Yeah. Well, and, and like, I think the flip of it is that if you're somebody who, you know, winds up in a really high station and has a bunch of success and gets a ton of money, even somebody who 
you know, previously was, um, well adjusted or had a sense of perspective or, you know, came from nothing, even somebody like that, I think a lot of money and success can have an amnesiac effect. And, oh, 100, 100%. Yeah. And, it, and it can insulate you in ways that make you, even if you don't intend for them to, less able to recognize and relate to the suffering of others. <laughs> yes, I, I think that's right. Or you, you just, it just becomes invisible to you. I mean, I think that's certainly, that's a real problem with wealth, with wealth inequality, with it, where I think like just a lot of these people have no fucking idea, you know, what, what, what most people experience. They don't know, you know, it's like that. It's like the, the, which was it? It was senior Bush, right? Who George Bush senior, who was, who was once went to the supermarket and was absolutely flabbergasted by the, the, the operation of the automatic checkout, you know, the, the kind of machine that scans things. He, he couldn't believe that that, <laughs> that that existed. Right. And it was like, dude, you know, you know, that's, I think money has a, has a, has a, can have a, an insulating effect. Um, you know, almost, almost, it, it's almost automatic once there's a certain amount of it involved. I mean, I, I've seen that with people and, and quite frankly, I've seen it even with, you know, I'd sometimes, I mean, not, not nearly to that extent, but you know, I, I think, I think there are, you know, members of my own family who, who are, you know, doing all right. And, um, and probably don't, don't see what it's like for people. I, I yeah, I was having a similar conversation or I was having a similar um, conversation recently with a friend talking about family members and good people who just will say something that reveals a kind of blindness. And you're like, really, did you really just say that? Did you really just suggest that, uh, like, you know, kind of casually saying, well, why don't you don't just do this? And it's like, well, I don't do that because I don't have like, you know, $50,000 sitting around, you know? Like, yes, exactly. It's like, exactly. what are you even talking about? Like, what world are you living in? You know, these just casually like, why don't you just, you know, I don't know. I think people lose touch a little bit, even, you know, if they don't intend to. And yeah, but, but I think, you know, to, just to go back to the original point, I think, you know, like su suffering and the, the reality of suffering and, and, uh, you know, and, and even just the reality of, 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 of boredom, you know, the reality of things that don't even rise to the level of suffering are still, you know, but that are kind of things that we try to drown out. You know, these are the things that keep us in touch with, with, you know, with, with experience that's, that's more genuine. So I really love this book and it feels like the kind of book that you sort of inched along with and intuited your way through. I could be totally wrong. I'm wondering yes. how it came together because it does weave different strands. You know, there's the cultural criticism strand, the film history strand, the personal strand, the familial strand, like all these different kind of uh, threads that you're breeding, you know, braiding together. I'm yeah. just curious how it, like how you arrived at these choices and when the thing started to congeal into a whole that you could make sense of. Yeah. I had been, I had, um, I had uh, written a novel after American Dream Machine that I was just not happy with. I, I just, I, you know, my, my agent liked it. Like people seemed to be, you know, like we're ready to go with this. And I was like, I just don't, I wasn't satisfied. And I had in mind, um, you know, that I wanted to write a kind of hybrid nonfiction of some kind. I just, I'd been reading lots of, you know, I realized that everything that I had really been reading 
uh, or really loving, you know, uh, Sarah Mangusso's books, uh, Heidi Julevitz's The Folded Clock, even some of the fiction that I liked, like, you know, like Rachel Cusk's outline novels, you know, I, I, I uh, Hilton Al's, uh, The Women, that was a, that was a big one for me, which is, which is, you know, kind of, uh, part memoir, part criticism. Um, you know, I was reading these books and I was thinking, you know, I like this better. Like I, I was trying to figure out how to do that. And then, um, you know, I kind of talked out the, the form, you know, with, with my, with my literary agent, we sold this book on proposal. Um, and, um, you know, so I, I kind of like, I had in mind like, okay, it's going to have, you know, seven sections and they're going to be about these, you know, people in this order. Um, although it changed a little as I wrote it, I, I did like make a, uh, at least one substitution. Um, but I didn't, you know, in terms of the actual, like, you know, the actual form of the book, um, you know, I had written the first chapter and nothing else when I, when I sold it. So I, I kind of, um, set out from there and you're right in that beyond a kind of like approximate structural map of like, these are the seven sections and these are the people that it's about. I, there was no outlining involved or, or any of that. Um, there never is for me. Um, I, I struggle with outlining and I think whether I'm writing a novel or the, the book that I'm writing right now, which is also, a, you know, I sold a proposal. I have a kind of big structure for it, but it's a, it's a very long book and it's, and it's, it's a, you know, I don't want to say a sustained improvisation. I mean, obviously there's a, there's a tremendous amount of editing and revising and course correcting that goes on, but I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an outliner. <laughs> I, I, I sort of believe that, that a good piece of writing has a, has a kind of internal logic that is discovered on the fly and that is unbreakable. That is, that is kind of, that is, that is packed into its first pages, um, pretty strongly. Like I, I think with everything I've ever written, it's like once I get the kind of first paragraph or the kind of opening, once I get the opening, right. Um, you know, the, the, the ending is, is nascent inside that beginning. It's, it's, it all kind of comes as one, as one thing, but that I kind of have to unpack it in real time. Um, so yeah, I, I started with that, you know, having written that chapter about Fitzgerald, which was longer when I first wrote it. And then I wound up kind of cutting it more or less in half for the actual book. Um, and then just, just blew it out from there. And the surprising thing is, is that structurally, you know, there's a lot, there was a lot of sentence work, but, but it didn't really change from what that draft was that I didn't, I didn't do any real like meaningful structural rewriting. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, so you saw it, you had, you had a vision of like, yeah, and you knew yeah. the people that you wanted, like the terrain you wanted to cover. Yeah, it came complete. I mean, or nearly complete. Um, you know, the, the Tuesday weld was, I, I wound up, she was someone that I changed my mind about. And I think I changed the order a little bit from what was in the proposal. I thought, oh, I'm going to write about this person for chapter two. And I wound up transposing it so that it was Eleanor Perry came first you know, that you make those choices the way you do with any piece of writing. Like you, you, you know, you come to a point and you think it's going to go one, you know, you've always thought, Oh, I'm going to do this. And then you get to that point in the narrative and you're like, Oh shit, I'm actually not going to do that. I'm going to do this other thing. Um, so there was a, a fair bit of that, but, um, but you know, it, it came in one, in one, you know, gesture and it came, it came reasonably quickly. I mean, I think I, I did wind up writing the, the book, you know, it took a little less than a year. Um, but I would say that the kind of the novel that I threw away before it, like there's a lot of stuff that, that there's a, there's a lot of kind of material that I, that I junked from the projects that were previous to it. And even while I was writing the proposal that 
you know, could be considered drafting towards it. Sure, sure. And like, what about discovery? Like, you know, it's, you have a, you know, this long gestation or the, the junk novel, which I think is part of the process of this book. And For then sure. You, then yeah. you have the vision and the people that you want to cover, but I could feel in the text, especially around stuff, I think personal stuff, like yeah. a sense of you discovering in the writing, like new insights or seeing things in a new way. Oh, oh 100, 100%. I mean, that's what one writes. I mean, that, that's certainly, you know, that's the only, that's the only thing that I'm, you know, it's in the one hand, it's like, but that, that's the, that's the one kind of principle that I try to guide my writing by. It's like, you know, if, if there's no insight in it for me on a kind of sentence to sentence level, then, then I can't write it. There's nothing, there's nothing there to be written, you know, <laughs> you know, um, so, you know, and then of course what you're always trying to do is, is create the kind of narrative frame that will allow you to experience that insight in the language as you write it. Um, and I think that's why this book, which has its kind of <clears throat> unusual frame of being, being a memoir, being a piece of criticism, being kind of all these things at, at once, um, you know, that was, that was what allowed it for me. Like if, you know, I, I wouldn't have wanted to write or couldn't have written like, oh, I'm just going to write a, a straight memoir about my family or, oh, I'm just going to write an essay collection about these people. You know, that didn't appeal to me. It was, it was the kind of combination form where I thought, oh, you know, that's the insight can live within this kind of formal bracket. And I can allow that to kind of generate, you know, generate the sentences and the voice and the, and the, the, the kind of moment to moment, uh, revelations of it. It's a beautiful book uh, at a sentence level. It's very lyrical and frankly, like, it, you know, I don't mean to be silly, but it, it definitely evokes Fitzgerald to me. Like you're, it's a beautifully written book and Thanks. captures, captures uh, this city very well. And, you know, especially in a contemporary context, uh, you know, I think of my friend, I don't know if you know Duke Haney or if you. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, yeah, I certainly know, certainly know who he is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. wrote a book called. Uh, I've had him on the show, but I he wrote a book called Death Valley Superstars. Yes, yes, and kind of the, you know not quite the same beat, but similar. Where uh, I love the fact that you're writing about all these people, or mostly you know a lot of these people who live in the shadows. <laughs> yeah, um, either like the you know the actual behind the scenes, like a Carol Eastman who's like totally out of picture, uh, somewhat by her own hand, or the people who you know just might not have like that white hot spotlight on them. And, um, Duke is writing about, you know, similar figures in entertainment. These people who like, oh, who, who yeah. might've been, you know, yeah. people who had great promise, but then flamed out or died young yeah. or, oh, you know, I can't, I can't wait to read that. I, I like what I, what I know of Duke's work. I, I just, I, I know I've read him and thought, yeah, this guy's good. Well, um, and it's, I, it, it's also I, like, especially living here and having a sense of, of the scale of the place and having a sense of the mathematics of the place. Like there's only so many seats at the table. Um, yes. And there's right. so many people trying to break through and have that Hollywood experience or whatever. Right. And, and so it's impossible, I think, to live here and have that kind of awareness and not become curious at a certain point about all the different lives that are unfolding that don't reach those heights which is 99 percent of the lives that are unfolding yes and and which i think are you know and, and i might add you know even the even the metaphor of, of reaching heights um which you know is is the one that we would all use i think is it feels suddenly very suspect to me because i just think to myself like you know there are so many things to aspire towards 
in living and in making art that aren't that. Right. You know, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I would say almost everything um, that is interesting in the making of art does, is, is aspiring. You know, even, it may also be aspiring to that, but it certainly is not only aspiring to that. Um, you know, I, I just think, uh, you know, everything, everything that I care about uh, or everything that interests me um, is happening at the level of the, the room and not the arena, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. I mean, it's like you're interested in making art as opposed to getting, getting people's attention. You know, that's kind of the, that kind of feels like a lot of the battle, you know, so much of the culture is focused on, um, you know, eyeballs and clicks and likes. And, you know, that's kind of the, a lot of the game these days. And I think it's hard to be, to be invested in a serious way in that kind of game and also to make art it seems like you have to make your choices <laughs> yeah i think that's true by the way that did you catch that little bit of pet noise that was that was my dog oh no wandering in the room that felt that felt like my like the moment of the bbc broadcaster with the babies <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> i welcome pets on this program i have no, i have no problem with the dog entering the frame or entering the uh, soundscape um yeah yeah with apologies too i think we got one one blurt from i don't know what my phone is in the other room i guess it rang to my computer but uh but hopefully that won't disfigure this this beautiful conversation too much no not at but, all and and uh what was i saying i was just talking about uh what people living in the shadows yes yes right and the people who live in the shadows of those people who are living in the shadows um yeah, that that whole question about you know aspiring towards art as opposed to aspiring towards attention. Right. Um, there's so much the attention economy, monetizing attention. You know, I see it all the time. It's like I, you know, it's like you open up your, I open up my Twitter feed, which I sometimes wonder why it exists, and I just think you know there, it's just, I, I mean, it's just not shade. I mean, it's like it's it's an economic imperative for a lot of us too. It's like you know, right? It's like you know, it's something that that people are are needing in order to survive which is itself you know depressing right none of us should have to should have to you know panhandle for attention in order to eat um but i think you know it's 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 just not it's just not compelling to me that the concept of just trying to magnetize attention for the sake of magnetizing attention not at all yeah and what a that makes me so <clears throat> so pissed off to think about the ways in which these social media companies sort of have us like you, you need them. Like they know you need yeah. them. You know, yeah, like, that's I don't, right. I don't want to have to need Facebook or, you know, ugh. no, no, Jesus. No. You know, and, and I, I dare to imagine that there is a, there exists a, if, if there exists a future at all, um, it is a future in which that is not the case. <laughs> right. Um, because I think any any future that continues to, to hinge upon one's ability to grab attention is, um, is going to be very short for the planet. So there you or, have it. Or just for human happiness. I mean, it just doesn't yeah, strike me as, it doesn't strike me as happiness making. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's kind of just, it's completely dystopic and undesirable. So may I ask what you're working on? You alluded to it earlier in the conversation. You said it's a long book. Is it a novel or? No, I mean, it's, it's funny because it's like, it is, it is, um, you know, also about my family and um and also and about the kind of motion picture business one more time um <laughs> after that i'll after this i'll i'll probably have to um at least hit pause and and write about a different slice of the world but but it is it is in many ways the story of how the the 
the motion picture industry or this, you know, the, the motion, the movies as we understood them, right? The, the movies as a kind of central cultural fact of American life, um, how they, how they died, how they lived and died. And I, and I think by now, you know, look, I'm, you know, to say the movies are dead is like saying the novel is dead or, you know, it's like it, 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 it's not true. Um, and I'm not really interested in kind of relitigating the, the kind of Scorsese, you know, are Marvel comics movies art or not, you know, there, there are to somebody. Um, and that certainly makes them art, but I think we can, we can, we can all pretty much agree that, that what the movies were to the 20th century, um, the streamers and the internet are to the 21st. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, it's really about, you know, how that, how that world collapsed. Um, and, um, it, but it's, it's not, you know, it's in other words, so it's a kind of very broad cultural history, but it's also a very intimate and in many ways, much more kind of traditional, um, narrative, you know, kind of memoir, uh, narrative memoir than the, than this book is it, it, and yet it moves and it reads at least to me, like a, like a novel. Um, you know, it's, it's very concerned with story. It's very concerned with, um, with scene work in a way that this book isn't, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big, 75 year long um epic odyssey in which some of the people are famous and some of the people are uh obscure and some of them are just me and my sister <laughs> and and my parents <laughs> um it's a it's a weird book i mean i'm i've i've really kind of finally fallen in love with it after a year and a half of of scrapping um it was supposed to be due in about a week and a half and i finagled a long extension which i badly need from um from echo so i'll be working on that for the next uh for the next year at least is this um, the golden hour or no yeah it's 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 called the the working title is the golden hour whether that title will stick or not we'll we'll see um but i'm i'm super excited about it and i think you know both of these books have in some ways i mean i think secretly i think this book always crashing in the same car is also a novel of a kind um you know i i i I, I am a novelist and my, my tools are a novelist tools, so to speak. Um, but this one, this, this new one feels very, um, very alive to me, like incredibly electric. And, and, um, it does a lot of things that this book that, that always crashing does not, um, just in terms of, of being, being a, you know, a, a, a piece of storytelling and a piece of kind of fully imagined world building. Um, I mean, this one is also, involves some world building but it's a it's a different world that i'm that i'm constructing for it um well, i'm excited about it because i think that's a story that needs to be told you know because i think especially in los angeles uh there is some resistance to the reality of the yeah. de the death of the of the movies as a central cultural concern at least to the to the extent that it existed in the 20th century like things have yeah, changed for sure and i would add also that that, you know, it's, it's not just about the movies per the movie, you know, a lot of the book is, is going to be New York set. It's, um, you know, it's, it's really about the, the end of American cultural hegemony, not just at home, um, but in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, because I think the movies were, were that, you know, they, they certainly in the latter half of the, the, at the very end of the century, once we lost automobiles, uh, and before there was Silicon Valley, they were our primary yeah. cultural export. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I think that, you know, it cultural export at a time when we were very involved in fighting wars abroad and pretending we weren't and all kinds of shit. So, um, so it has that involved with it too. 
Wow. Well, there, that's a good tease. I'm excited to, <laughs> to read that one when you get it done. Hurry up. <laughs> yeah, I'm working. Man. I'm working. Taking my time, taking time off today to, to have this exciting conversation, which has just been so fun. It's so fun. But, uh, but yeah, I'm really loving that too. And then last question, um, American Dream Machine, Adaptation. Ah, I love that question. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just because, I mean, it, it seems, I don't know, the work that you're doing, like the, especially that, you know, seems like uh, yeah. something that Hollywood would be interested in considering. That was a fun one, um, you know, or it was fun and frustrating. You know, before the book sold, it was, it was optioned by Showtime. Um, I wrote a pilot with my friend Michael C. Hall. Um, and it was right when he was wrapping Dexter and, you know, we were, we were, we worked on it together and it was, we were very good to go. And I think the network was a little, I think they just had other things in mind for Michael. Um, they didn't really know what the, what the, they didn't, I don't, didn't get the impression anybody there had ever really spent much time reading the novel. Um, and I think that, um, you know, that pilot, which we were very excited about, um, they didn't pick it up. So, um, and you know, the trouble with, pilots as opposed to movies you know when when if you if a script if you were a feature script usually you can just take it with you to another place but it's very hard to take a a completed pilot to another network so what wound up happening was i sold the the, the different set of producers took the book to fx who bought it um and there i think i had a slightly more traditional development process where we just all my two producers who i really loved and i wound up kind of torturing ourselves to death in an effort to kind of thread the eye of what we thought the the network would make and by the time we got to the end of it the network had a competing project in development <laughs> i mean dude, this all which sounds it, sounds very familiar to me yeah which it wound up not picking up either they they went to pilot on their other show about a talent agency but then they didn't pick up that pilot they didn't go to series um so um so that book is now um out of option and um uh you know it's it's a show for somebody um but right now I've been too busy writing this book and then, and the next one to really try to lug it anywhere else. Okay. Well, if there's any consolation, I mean, you know it as well as anyone, especially having written always crashing. Yeah. That the, uh, the lifetimes of scripts, books, projects in Hollywood, unpredictable is the oh no it's 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 wild i mean i still i got a call the other day about the first script i ever wrote which was an adaptation of shirley hazard's novel the transit of venus and you know i've gotten scripts about i've gotten calls about that script on and off for 20 years um you know and it's like that one seems to be sputtering to life somewhere in the background with the kind of resurgent interest in shirley and and uh you know, so it's like, who knows? I, you know, I have never put too much expectation on anything, any script I've ever written. You know, really the, the book, as much as I say in this book, you know, oh, I was a screenwriter. I was this, I, you know, I've only ever screenwritten, uh, when I was lucky enough to be able to do so for money. I, I've never, you know, sat in a room and thought I'm going to spec out this movie and it's going to, you know, it's going to get made. Like I don't do it like that. <laughs> yeah. I do it because someone makes me an offer. I can't refuse. There you go. There you go. Um, yeah. All right, Matthew. Well, I'm a, I'm a fan and really loved uh, always crashing. Just a, a wonderful read. I didn't want it to end and I congratulate you on it and wish you all the best on the next one. And uh, hope you'll come back and talk to me about it when the time comes. 
Thank you so much. And, and I, um, I hope to see you around our, our shared neighborhood now that we can all go outside safely. Um, this was really a, a delight. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you on, on the microphone or off. So it's, it's really lovely. All right. That's Matthew Spector. His new book is called Always Crashing in the Same Car on Art, Crisis, and Los Angeles, California. It is just out from Tin House, and it is excellent. You can find Matthew on the uh, internet at MatthewSpector.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle over there is at Matthew Spector. One more time, the book is called Always Crashing in the Same Car. Go get your copy right away. Just trust me on this. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are made available to you, the listener, free of charge. That's more than 700 uh, episodes and counting. The entire archive available for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the program, if you listen and you get something from it and you want to support the show, tip your server. If you have the means to do that, you can do that over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. For as little as $1 per month, you can support this show there are different tiers, different levels of support. As you go up to scale, you can get stuff. You can get a tote bag, a t-shirt, a sticker, a coffee mug. I'll write you a postcard. I'll wish you a happy birthday. You know the drill. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Another easy way to support the show and, some, and uh, show some love is to rate it and review it over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. If you rate the show and review the show, it helps other listeners find the show in an algorithmic fashion. If you want to write to me, the email address for the program is letters at otherppl.com. This show also has its own official app. It, too, is free. The Other People with Brad Listy app is available wherever apps are available. Go get the app. The Other People podcast also has a YouTube presence. Did you know that? That happened this year. The Other People with Brad Listy YouTube channel. Every single episode is up on YouTube. What do you know? So go uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can listen over there if you want. So I am uh, back after being away for a little bit. It's good to be back, I think. Actually, no, it's not. <laughs>